Thank you very much to the organizers, Dr. Flanagan and Dr. Downs, as well as Dr. Manga and President Thrasher. I feel very lucky to give the last talk, as I will not be able to step on toes if I go late, and prostate cancer is a relatively limited topic within urology. <laughs> These are my disclosures. There were a total of 21 moderated poster sessions and 13 podium sessions within the AUA 2018, as well as six late-breaking abstracts. There were several discussions within the state-of-the-art uh, panels, several point-counterpoint debates, as well as the session one of the Society of Urologic Oncology meeting focused on prostate cancer. There were several major themes that I will go over that were included in this year's meeting. The impact of screening on survival continues to be a hot topic that uh, was discussed thoroughly. Optimization of active surveillance in patients with low and intermediate risk disease. A blade of techniques for localized prostate cancer, including ultrasound or thermal ablation. The optimal treatment for localized, high risk, and oligometastatic disease is a particularly hot topic as well. <coughs> the imaging for staging, recurrence, and metastasis, much of which was nicely summarized by Dr. Salami earlier. Lastly, the mechanisms of castrate resistance and metastasis, and then we'll wrap up with some of the clinical trials uh, that have been going on. As we know, just recently, the United States Preventive Services Task Force revised their PSA screening guidelines to a C grade for men ages 55 to 69, indicating a benefit of shared decision making for appropriately selected men with a good survival. However, there is continued controversy uh, on the impact of PSA screening uh, in, in general populations. The group from uh, the ERSPC provided some updated survival data from the Rotterdam 1 section. A uh, 19-year follow-up showed a significant difference in progression to metastatic disease in the screening group versus the control group, and this was an early separation of the curves. Additionally, there is a separation or a significant difference in prostate cancer mortality between the two groups. And as you can see, the separation of curves begins at approximately eight years from the time of screening. In regards to active surveillance for prostate cancer, there are several papers that looked at the incorporation of multiparametric MRI and genomic testing for risk stratification. One particular abstract that came out of Johns Hopkins looked at the prostate health index and multiparametric MRI to predict prostate cancer grade reclassification in active surveillance. Another study from the Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, looked at the levels of anxiety among men who are on active surveillance. And while they showed that there was some uh, moderate to high levels of anxiety early on, as men progressed over time, their anxiety was relieved and Im improved significantly. Additionally, several abstracts looked at optimal candidates for active surveillance, particularly for expanded criteria, such as uh, men with Gleason 3 plus 4 disease, which I'll go into in a second, as well as in high-risk populations, including African-American men. And Dr. Curtis Petaway gave an excellent talk on uh, the feasibility of active surveillance in uh, black population. Uh, the, uh, there was a study, um, moderated poster 1203, examined the survival of men within various definitions of favorable intermediate risk disease. They looked at the National Cancer Database and identified 
uh, 60,000, 63,000 men with under uh, intermediate risk disease who underwent radical prostatectomy. The various definitions they use for favorable intermediate risk include Gleason Group 2, uh, which is Gleason 3 plus 4, the Memorial Sloan Kettering definition, as well as volume and Gleason Group restrictions. And what they showed is that there was a, a significant difference in the adjusted survival uh, of those who had low risk versus favorable intermediate risk disease, as you can see on the left, as well as uh, the difference between no, no adverse pathology and adverse pathology on radical prostatectomy. And their final conclusion was that adverse pathology at radical prostatectomy was observed at threefold higher rate for favorable intermediate risk versus low risk disease. This is going to be very important when we're counseling our patients on their potential for disease progression while on surveillance. In regards to treatment of localized high-risk and metastatic cancer, there is still a long debate about uh, surgery versus radiation. Uh, there may be a bias, but at a urology meeting, it seemed that surgery seemed to win. Uh, thermal and ultrasonic ablation continue to be of great interest, particularly in focal therapy. Um, Follow-up and long-term results are still pending for many of these studies, but they are promising. Lastly, another topic was treatment of the primary tumor and oligometastatic disease versus systemic therapy alone. Again, there are promising de uh, um, data showing that treatment of the primary may have a survival benefit. Uh, Dr. Pr Brian Chapin at MD Anderson is starting a randomized trial uh, studying this particular subject. There was some controversy with the publication of the PIVOT data in 2012, which suggested that there was no improvement in all-cause or prostate cancer-specific mortality for radical prostatectomy versus observation. The group at NIH uh, wanted to test the external validity of this study um, using uh, reference cohorts from the SEER database, the National Cancer Database, and PLCO. What they showed is that the pivot uh, population was significantly less healthy compared to the NCDB and PLCO trials where there was Charleston data available. And that there was a significant mortality difference. The pivot trial showed a 64% mortality versus 8 to 23% in an equivalent population in the other series. And so they showed there was approximately three to eight times higher overall mortality in pivot versus what is considered to be clinical standard practice. And so they argue that PIVOT is likely not applicable to our clinical practice. Another study from MD Anderson looked at treatment of men with high-risk prostate cancer. They variably received radical prostatectomy versus radiation treatment and androgen deprivation. And so they compared 231 men who received radical prostatectomy versus 74 who received radiation androgen deprivation. As you can see, there are some uh, critical um, significant differences between the two populations. But in the Kaplan-Meier curves, you can see that there's no difference in local failure, distant metastasis failure, and overall survival between the two groups, indicating that there is likely equivalent efficacy between radical prostatectomy and radiation in this population. Switching to mechanisms of castrate resistance and metastasis, the search group led by Dr. Friedland looked at the impact of prior local therapy on overall survival in men who eventually reach metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Men who receive radi uh, uh, radical prostatectomy, plus or minus adjuvant, adjuvant or salvage radiation, 
has significantly improved survival compared to radiation alone or observation or androgen deprivation. Again, this indicates that treatment of the primary does have long-term survival benefit in this high-risk group. Uh, Dr. John Petros's group at Emory University uh, has previously described a mitochondrial DNA mutation, uh, point mutation in, um, at 10398. They did subsequent expansion of their patient population and found that over 50% of these patients had a mutation at this location. And it far exceeds any other somatic mutation that has been previously reported, suggesting that there's a functional importance and this could uh, have great implications for uh, treatment of men with bone metastatic disease. The Spartan trial was reported earlier this year. Uh, Eric Small did a sub-analysis sub, sub uh, looking at PSA progression uh, of patients uh, taking apalutamide in the M0 CRPC. They showed a 94% risk reduction of PSA progression on apalutamide uh, and a median survival uh, or median um, PSA progression not reached in the treatment group versus 3.7 months in placebo. Their important findings were that in men with untreated non-metastatic CRPC, a shorter PSA doubling time was associated with increased risk of metastasis or death, increased risk of symptomatic progression, and a shorter time to progression during treatment. Therefore, the men who re received apalutamide had a significant decline of greater than 50% PSA in 93% of patients. The PSA declined to less than 0.2 in 40% and less than 0.02 in 13%. Rapid PSA declines with median time to PSA response of less than one month. Lastly, I'll wrap up with several clinical trials that were reported. I will not go into the full details, but I invite you to look at these uh, at, at your plane trip home. Um, three of the late-breaking abstracts, including the MEAL study uh, by Kelly Parsons, a randomized clinical trial of diet intervention on, of men on active surveillance. There were not any significant differences, at least early on, in the uh, tissue. However, there may be some long-term implications of um, uh, genomic um, uh, impact down the road. Lori Klotz presented uh, their Tulsa trial looking at uh, MRI-guided um, ultrasound ablation in patients with localized prostate cancer. Baller and colleagues have a phase two trial they reported looking at gallium-68 PSMA detection on both preoperative PET-CT and immediate postoperative specimen scanning. Other trials included a, a multi-center European trial looking at MRI-targeted biopsy, showing that it was non-inferior to standard trust-guided biopsy for diagnosis of clinically significant prostate cancer. There's a randomized comparison of techniques for control of the dorsal venous complex during robotic radical prostatectomy. And lastly, uh, there was an excellent trial uh, looking at neoadjuvant enzalutamide and androgen deprivation in advanced prostate cancer phase two trial. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. It's my honor to, uh, I have the dubious distinction of being the last, uh, but hopefully um, I will give you a good take-home message vis-a-vis -vis what we learned at this meeting as it relates to uh, BPH and LUTs. Uh, first of all, I have no disclosures. So the AUA guidelines, of which I was a member uh, of the panel, came out with the newest and fourth iteration 
for lower urinary tract symptoms associated with BPH. Uh, this was presented at this year's uh, annual meeting. It's currently published on the AUA website. And in contradistinction to uh, prior guidelines, we focus this time primarily on surgical treatments and uh, the newer minimally invasive treatments for LUTs, BPH. We also uh, addressed recommendations for evaluation and preoperative testing, the most significant of which is a suggestion, not a requirement, that assessment of prostate size and shape be considered by the treating physician using a variety of techniques, including ultrasound, cystoscopy, or pre-existing cross-sectional imaging. And we recommended this because some of the new treatments are limited by size and or anatomy of the prostate, in particular, the presence of an obstructed, obstructing middle lobe. So I thought first to uh, talk a little bit about what we learned about the etiology of LUTs uh, BPH. Uh, the group from South Korea demonstrated that in patients who had increased free T4, uh, there was a relationship between that and the development of lower urinary tract symptoms. Furthermore, uh, the group from Houston found that in men with Peyronie's disease, they seem to have a higher rate of lower urinary tract symptoms, and they hypothesized that maybe there was some disorder in myofibroblasts that could explain this association. We've heard about associations between obesity and lower urinary tract symptoms, overactive bladder, et cetera. However, the group from Rochester found only a weak association. Metabolic syndrome is an important uh, relationship, and the group from Italy revealed that metabolic syndrome and smoking was associated with a higher or more uh, nocturia after undergoing TURP with an odds ratio of three. Uh, the group from South Korea looked at metabolic syndrome and also found an increased prevalence of BPH specifically as it related to uh, a decreased HDL. And finally, uh, the group from Japan uh, looked at prostate specimens from uh, radical prostatectomies and looked at the arteries and found that local atherosclerosis uh, uh, was related, associated with an increased size in the prostate. Now what about basic science in LUTs? Um, there's always been interest in prostatic inflammation and the effects on uh, lower urinary tract symptoms, and the group from Pittsburgh revealed that uh, a rat model of uh, Prostatic inflammation, capsaicin-induced, uh, caused bladder overactivity and regulation of growth factors. So this may give us some insight into the storage symptoms of LUTs. Uh, the group from Germany looked at uh, pololite kinase and alpha-adrenergic prostate smooth muscle contraction. Maybe we can block this, inhibit this. Again, uh, from Japan, looking at inflammation in stroma versus non-stroma from human prostate, they found that Inflammation found in the stroma was associated with increased severity in lower urinary tract symptoms and bladder outlet obstruction. Uh, there was uh, findings from Germany showing that there was non-adrogenic smooth muscle contraction mediated by endothelin and thromboxane, and that may explain uh, limited efficacy uh, from alpha blockers. And then finally, uh, we note that there's an androgenic to, or the group from Boston noted that there was an androgenic to estrogenic milieu change in obesity that altered the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, and that may affect uh, response to 
5-alpha uh, reductase inhibitors. Now, what about medical therapy? Uh, Rareborn uh, showed that there may be a large cohort of men out there untreated with Lutz BPH who may be interested in self-directed care. And when you look at this group, their symptoms, they, they tend to have longer-term symptoms and they're more moderate and severe. Um, the group from Cleveland looked at um, the effectiveness of transurethral prostate procedures uh, resulting in discontinuation of medication, which is now one endpoint that we look at in BPH-LUTS treatment, and found that the uh, tissue-eliminating procedures did better than those that necrosed it. There's been concern about uh, combination anticholinergic and alpha-blocker treatment for lower urinary tract inf uh, symptoms, in particular retention, and this group found that uh, the uh, results were similar, however, there was not an increased risk of retention. And finally, uh, the group from Birmingham demonstrated that com combination behavioral and drug therapy for LUTs in men resulted in uh, lower urinary frequency. Um, going back to the metabolic syndrome again, this group, the first group demonstrated that metformin in men with LUTs and metabolic syndrome improved their IPSS scores. And uh, another concern of ours is the combination of uh, tamsulosin-like drugs and tadalafil. And this group compared combination versus tam tamsulosin and found that uh, uh, the lower urinary tract symptoms and other uh, tests that we use for LUTs BPH improved along with erectile function. But more importantly, there was no significant increase in the adverse events. Urinary incontinence and lower urinary tract symptoms. Uh, the Lower Urinary Tract Dysfunction Research Network looked at this in men and found that, interestingly, 76% of men with lower urinary tract symptoms have some form of urinary incontinence, the predominant of which is uh, post-void dribbling, but also associated uh, with increased bowel and psychological uh, symptoms. The group from San Francisco uh, evaluated elderly men and looked at their body composition and muscle strength, and they revealed that if you had a lower body mass index and body fat, higher lean body mass and muscle strength, you had lower uh, prevalence of incontinence. However, interestingly, if, that, if you attempted to change that in those who had elevated BMI and weakened muscle strength, that did not change uh, urinary incontinence. Uh, there were a couple of, there were a few papers on postoperative urinary uh, retention. Uh, Blavis from New York uh, looked at catheter-dependent men who had failed uh, prior surgery and were told they were no longer surgical candidates. Um, they underwent urodynamics, and most of them had detrusor uh, underactivity, and 88% of them were catheter-free after repeat surgery. Uh, similarly, from New York, uh, they evaluated the role of urodynamics in uh, patients with detrusor underactivity and retention prior to PVP. And again, most of those patients postoperatively void it despite the diagnosis of detrusor underactivity. Um, and the group from Phoenix revealed that uh, postoperative urinary retention after joint replacement was higher after knee replacements than uh, hip replacements. So there was a lot of um, discussion about uh, different techniques to treat uh, Lutz BPH. Uh, here we're talking about prostatic urethral lift. Kaplan and Roarborn uh, revealed that predictors of success at five years were total IPSS, weak stream, and incomplete emptying. Um, water vapor therapy using the resume. 
uh, uh, a large series revealed modest improvement in symptoms and flow rate. Uh, however, again, another endpoint, 90% of those stopped all their BPH medications. One concerning factor about the study was a high UTI rate. And then uh, the group from Chicago looked at the impact of surgical duration on TURP and, as expected, found that the complication rate increased, as did the duration of the procedure. You heard about aquablation in uh, one of the plenary sessions, and uh, this, the first group looked at aquablation versus TURP, in particular erectile dysfunction and ejaculatory dysfunction, and found no change in uh, erectile function at six months. However, uh, TURP showed almost a three-time uh, uh, increase in retrograde ejaculation. Um, Rareborn and Gilling also showed that uh, looking at uh, aquablation and TURP in large prostates in moderate to severe LUTs, that the complication rates in the aquablation group was lower. There was a significantly larger decrease reduction in IPSS, and in a specific group of patients with large prostates and low flow rates, the reduction in IPSS was even greater. Um, Gilling and Rareborn looked at aquablation versus TERP in men with moderate symptoms and found it to be non-inferior to TERP with less retrograde ejaculation. Laser enucleation uh, was uh, studied quite a bit, primarily with HOLEP. Uh, the first study revealed that in those patients taking antithrombotics, they had higher risk of uh, bleeding complica complications, particularly with double and triple therapy. Um, the group from Montreal uh, had an 18-year experience, and they had no transfusions, and only 1.4% needed to have a redo procedure. Uh, in small prostates, the group from uh, Germany revealed that TURP was just as good as, uh, or HOLEP was just as, uh, performed just as well as TURP, uh, with better reduction in PVR, though it took longer. And the group from Phoenix showed that many of these patients, almost two-thirds, can be discharged on the same day. Uh, PVP and ejaculation uh, preservation procedures were discussed. Uh, outcomes of 180-watt PVP uh, procedures in obese patients found no difference except for longer operative times. Uh, the group uh, from France, Germany, and Boston revealed that predictive factors for incontinence after PVP mainly re revolved around large uh, prostate size. And then there was uh, uh, discussion about specific procedures to spare ejaculation after TURP uh, and other types of ablative procedures. And the group from uh, New York revealed a 12-year experience with only resecting the middle lobe and the ejaculatory dysfunction uh, was only 2.8%. Uh, the Paris group revealed uh, or discussed an ejaculation-preserving green light uh, PVP and anti-grade ejaculation was preserved at 90%. Thank you very much, and uh, have a safe travel home.